All right, if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me today to the, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 7. The Revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 7. I'm not going to read the first eight verses that we went through last week. Uh, so we're going to start today in verse 9. Revelation chapter 7. Beginning with verse 9, the word of God says this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray for the preaching of God's Word. Father in Heaven, we are so thankful again to be able to gather together today and gather around Your Word and hear the preaching of Your Word. Lord, we pray for Your grace because we don't want this to be just a mental exercise, not just a uh, conveying of information to, to people but something spiritual and deep. And, and we know that the preaching of your word is powerless about, with, apart from your spirit. The word of God is spiritually discerned. So open our hearts to hear, open our eyes to see, give us wisdom, that the truths that are proclaimed by this text of scripture penetrate deep into our hearts and transform us let it be a catalyst for worship in our hearts as we look to the God who is faithful and true. As we see the example of those who went before us, as we endure faithfully the sufferings that you allow in each of our lives, make us more like Jesus Amen. through the proclamation of your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are coming back again to chapter 7. Back to our consideration of this interlude that happens between the breaking of the sixth and the seventh seal, wherein we find these two groups of believers singled out for a particular purpose. Of course, we have the first group, that's the 144,000 of God's elect uh, sealed out of Israel there on the earth. And then we have this second group that we'll talk about today, just a great worshiping multitude of saints out of all the nations, but they are in heaven. Now, overarchingly, as we told you last week, these, these two groups of Christians are presented to us together here in chapter 7 as the direct answer to that pressing question that rose up at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? 
So when the day of God's wrath finally comes, who is going to be able to stand before the throne of God above in holiness, in righteousness, and in victory? Who can stand? That's the question. And here's the answer that God, by these two groups of people, uh, just definitively and unequivocally gives to us. Those will stand, living and dead, whose hope is in Christ alone. Those will stand, living and dead, whose hope is in Christ alone. So for those who hope in Christ alone for their salvation, those are going to stand dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone, faultless to stand before his throne as we sing uh, in the song. Those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation will stand when God's judgment comes, when we meet God face to face in the final day. And that, of course, is good news. That's a, that's a major part of the proclamation of the gospel. Because of the work of Christ on the cross for us, we're gathered together today in holiness, in righteousness, in victory, regardless of, of what your, your weak past has looked like. In Jesus Christ, in his work, you are made righteous if you're trusting in him. And you stand vindicated. When you stand before God, and each and every one of us will, if your hope is in Christ alone, you will stand. And of course, that is the, the broadest possible answer for this question and for the purpose of the revelation. And of course, revelation is focused on the outpouring of God's wrath on the covenant breakers in Israel and on all of the events that were surrounding that time. Uh, our text gets very specific, and that's why we have these two groups of people uh, coming into view here. They each provide unique nuance to the answer to that question, who can stand? And so we have to unpack that nuance to get the full meaning of the text. So that's what we started doing last week. We, we started with the 144,000 elect Jews uh, who were singled out, marked out by God to be survivors of the coming wrath. God was going to providentially uh, preserve them through the judgment. They were going to remain alive. And we spent a great deal of time in the sermon last week just trying to identify properly this 144,000 because these 144,000 Jews, I mean, bloodline believing Jews, they stand as a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. And it's important that we remember that for all the reasons that we laid out in that last sermon, but especially because their survival, the survival of the 144,000 believing Jews over against maybe the survival of Gentiles who also would uh, survive this time, their survival testifies to the fact that God is still saving Jews. The Lord, is, as Paul will say in Romans, God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. In fact, again, Romans, it is into that Jewish root that we as Gentiles have been engrafted, and it is in that, that root that is Christ that we get to all of the promises of God, and we're co-inheritors uh, with faithful Abraham, it really is a beautiful thing. The, the plan of God, the wisdom of God in redemption is an incredible thing. That's, that's, why, that's why Paul comes to the end of chapter 11 of Romans and he just gives that incredible doxological cry. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. He's just celebrating God and the wisdom of God and pouring out salvation and redemption in the way that he has across time. It's, it's a beautiful thing. God's faithfulness to Israel remains, and those 144,000 sealed of Israel demonstrate that to us. And that brings us to our examination of this mixed multitude of worshipers in heaven and to their part of the answer 
to that question, who can stand? Now, with respect to this group, they're not nearly so difficult to identify. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of work to do to really get to the heart of the scripture and its meaning and implication for us today. But there's really not a lot of dispute over who these people are. We're going to walk through these things uh, just systematically today. You don't have a lot of writing to do, uh, but I have provided a, a lot of different things for you in your notes because I want you to be able to carry these things away from with you in the coming weeks. I have found it most beneficial to be able to be preaching a sermon and say, I want you to go back and just look at your notes from week three and see the numbers that we talked about then. It saves us a lot of time. So we've given you some very detailed notes. Let's just get to point number one today, the identity of the great innumerable multitude. Uh, letter A, and for your notes, they are saints. They're saints. Saints is the word that goes in the blank there in your notes. So they're saints. Uh, look at the end of verse 9 on through verse 10. I printed that for you in your notes. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So very clearly, and I've printed this little bullet list for you in your notes, uh, these are believers. They're seen here in, in the text, standing in the presence of God. They're clothed in the victorious robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are holding the palm branches of victory in, your, in their hands. And if you could just think back for a minute with me to the book of Exodus. Right, these palm branches are intimately connected in Jewish life with the Feast of Tabernacles. So coming out of captivity in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, Israel is now dwelling in, in booths and tents for a long period of time. They have this Feast of Tabernacles that remembers that. But these palm branches are significant for them because they symbolize a victory, a salvation. You've come through and now you're dwelling uh, with God. And so there, there's this deep connotation of victory as palm branches come into view. So they're, they're, they're living out salvation. They're singing the song of salvation. And this song that they're singing is being sung to God and they call him our God, right? He's their God. So again, clearly, these are believers there's saints. Nobody really disputes that. We're not going to belabor that particular point. B, they're numerous and diverse. Diverse is the word that goes in the blank. They are numerous and they are diverse. Verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, and languages. So they're called a great multitude that no one man could number. And I've written this little note for you there in your notes as well. If the 144,000, which in itself is a pretty substantial number, if that 144,000 can be numbered, then surely this number, whatever it is, <coughs> who is numerable, it's got to be many, 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 many times more vast than that. So here we have a crowd represented that is in the multiplied millions. It's a vast, immeasurable, innumerable crowd as far as humanity is concerned. It really is an impressive thing. But it isn't just the size of the crowd that is so impressive. It is the diversity of it, right? So they're described in the fourfold way. I've printed this for you in your notes as well. And I'm asking you here to think back again to that uh, previous sermon that we preached about the significance of numbers in the Revelation. So they're described in this fourfold way, and four means all of creation. It's something that is creation wide. 
They're described in this fourfold way. It's coming from the broadest possible context. As scripture mentions, and I've given you the Greek words there in your notes, every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. And this includes even the dialects of languages. Got to put this into a very specific and understandable context for you, just so you get the breadth of this. When we think back to the first century, the nation of Israel, she is a nation, right? Likewise, the the, the nation of Greece that existed in the Roman Empire as well. She's a nation. Uh, the nation of Parthia, uh, that's a competitive empire with Rome. She's to the, to the east of, of Israel. She's a nation. And when we look back into history, we learn that just within the Roman Empire itself, and just by the way, most of the time when the biblical authors are talking about the whole world, the oikumene, they're talking about the Roman Empire. But history will tell us that there are more than 130 nations in that Roman Empire. So we're already beginning to see a lot of diversity in this crowd in heaven. But the text even gets more specific and even more broad than that because within these nations, there are also tribes. So we look into the nation of Israel and we think of 12 tribes. Each one of those 12 tribes has its own very unique uh, culture. We look into the, the nation of, of Greece, and history says that in the first century, Greece had more than 80 different tribes, all with a very unique uh, character and culture in their own uh, right. Eight, more than 80 different, just in the nation of Greece. Then we come to the, the far west in the empire, and we think about the Celtic tribes. History tells us that there are about 600 or more just various Celtic tribes and and so you look back into history and you find out that there are tens of thousands of tribes represented in just the Roman Empire. So already this, this group is getting more and more diverse. But again, the text doesn't stop there. It goes further and it mentions peoples. And here's where we start thinking, okay, within the tribes themselves, we've got houses, we've got clans, we've got families. And so just using Israel as an example, we've got the house of David. We've got the house of Saul. Each tribe has its divisions of houses. We come into Rome, we think about the house of Caesar. So we're, we're getting so many different breakdowns of the culture. And this text is saying they're coming from all of them. And then beyond that, we look at the thousands and thousands of languages and dialects out there. This group is simply massive. And, I, and I've written this for you there in your notes. This group in heaven is made up of people from all of those, every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. These are millions and millions of individuals with backgrounds too numerous to count. So we have here just this massive, diverse multitude gathered around the throne. That proves the point there, but I don't want you to overlook the significance of this point in connection with what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. So I have this in your notes as well. I've given you the passage from Matthew chapter 24. But there in the Olivet Discourse, if you'll think back to our sermon series on that, Jesus was telling his disciples that before the end of the age would come, the end of that generation, right? Before the end of the age would come, uh, this gospel of the kingdom will have to have been preached uh, throughout, the whole, throughout the whole world as a testimony to them. That's what Jesus said would have to come, right? That has to happen. I want you to hear this because this factors into, I believe, a lot of wrong eschatology today. A major reason why a lot of futurists have trouble believing in a first century fulfillment 
of Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse, have, a, have trouble believing a, a first century fulfillment of the book of the Revelation, is they really have trouble believing that the gospel actually went out to all the world prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And clearly Jesus says, the gospel has to go to the world before I come, right? Before I come in judgment, before the end of that age comes. You can think to even some of our Southern Baptist Convention missionary materials that we, we get in here from time to time. Typically the plea is made as we think about getting the gospel out and they're, they're pleading, go share the gospel with your neighbors, pray about going into missions, make sure you're giving uh, to the missions as we send people out. And it's based on, well, there are X number of people groups out there who've never heard the gospel. They have no access to the gospel. And Jesus can't come back until they have access to the gospel. So let's go and let's give to make sure that they get access to the gospel. Right? You've heard that. Right? We've talked about it in some of our, of our small groups. Well, fundamentally, don't get me wrong. If there are people out there that don't have access to the gospel, we need to care about that. Amen. We need to continue to give and go and serve to make sure that everybody can hear the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. But that language of you got to give because there's people groups out there who've never heard and Jesus can't come back until they have. It really comes down to a misunderstanding of Jesus's words in the Olivet Discourse and a refusal to believe what history and the Bible tells us actually took place before Jesus brought judgment upon the Jews. And so I've written this for you there in your notes. The scripture does tell us that the gospel did in fact reach the whole world within that one generation following the passion of, of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to give you some of the historical and biblical um, data that's out there. First off, history tells us that at the time of Christ, the Jews uh, accounted for up to 20% of the entire population of the Roman Empire. And they had permeated every nook and cranny of the Roman Empire. They were living far in the west and far in the east and the north and the south, everywhere that Rome had influence and even beyond that, the Jews were everywhere. And they accounted for, like I said, up to 20% of the Roman population. Well, then now put that into the biblical context, Acts chapter 2. All right, the day of Pentecost is fully come, the text tells us. Um, they're, they're devout Jews who are living all over the empire, but once a year they make that pilgrimage into Jerusalem so that they can be there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they can be there for the, uh, for the Passover, and they stay living in Jerusalem until the, the Feast of Pentecost comes, right? These are the things that they're there for. And so here we have the text, Acts 2.5. I've printed it for you in your notes. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. So Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost from virtually every nation under heaven. And the text doesn't limit it to just Jews. Verses 9 through 11, which I've also printed for you, list out Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabians. Just a vast number of people from all over the world are there on the day of Pentecost, when the apostles go out and begin to preach the gospel. And because of the gift of tongues that God has, has given to the church, language is not an issue. Right? They're the apostles, and they're, they're probably preaching in their native language. They're probably preaching in Hebrew. But Acts tells us that 
each one there heard the gospel being preached in their own language. So it's like me speaking English, but the French guy over here hears it in French, and the Spanish guy over here hears it in Spanish, and the Hebrew guy hears it in, in Hebrew. This is what's happening on the day of Pentecost. And the scripture tells us that many, many people believed, and of course they're carrying the gospel back into their own nations and tribes and peoples and, and languages. And so just there in Acts chapter 2, we already have this, this germ, this seed of the gospel going out into all the world. And so much that by the time Paul sits down to write Romans and Colossians in the late 50s, so this is only, this is not even 30 years after Christ has ascended, right? The gospel had already been proclaimed throughout the whole world. Just listen to what they said. Romans chapter 1. Through him, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And then chapter 16 of Romans. The gospel is now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith. So clearly as, as Paul is writing this, he's realized already that the gospel has gone to the, the far reaches of the world. Colossians 1, 5, 6, and 23. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has, right, this past tense, as it has also in all the world. Verse 23, the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. So just according to the Bible, according to the scriptures themselves, uh, he's, Paul is here writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Within 30 years of Christ's passion, the gospel had reached the whole world and, and historically multiplied millions of people, Jews and Gentiles alike, had come at that time to know Christ as their Savior. And we look back into church history. And church history recounts the, the, the deeds of the apostles. And it talks about how the, the twelve themselves went out to Idumea and Syria and Mesopotamia and Egypt and Ethiopia, other parts of Africa, uh, places I can't even pronounce, uh, Pontus, Galatia, right, Asia. They're, the gospel is going out through all the world just uh, through the, the efforts of the apostles. And that doesn't even count the multitudes of other missionary voices that are being sent out and that have gone out since the day of Pentecost. All in all, both the scripture and history attest to this fact of the first century global proclamation of the gospel. And so this description here, Revelation chapter 7, of, of saints that, is, that are innumerable and diverse and have been brought together from all of the nations and tribes and peoples and, and tongues from all over the world, right? This is, this is something that these Christians in Asia Minor who are reading this letter, it's something that they fully understand. This vision of the church is not a surprise to them. And, and it really is, it's a comfort. It is good news to these people who are suffering and are about to suffer even more because they are seeing this crowd in heaven with which they are intimately connected because of Christ. Like they are believers out of every nation and tribe and tongue. And they're seeing this vision of believers out of every nation, tribe, people, tongue, in heaven, gathered around the throne. And this is good news for them. This is God's victorious people gathered around his throne. 
and worship. But of course, as good as this news is, it is in some sense sad because this diverse, innumerable multitude of people, of saints, they're in heaven. So they've died or they've been martyred. And so point C for your notes here. They're casualties of the conflict. They're casualties of the great conflict. So we look at verse 13 here. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And there's, there's more to the passage as it goes on and ends, but that's sufficient to get the idea here. These are people, according to the text, who had died or would die, who had been martyred or would be martyred as a direct result of the great tribulation on the church, which Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24, I think I put the reference there for you in your notes, the great tribulation that was going to come before the outpouring of his wrath on Israel. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 24 and you read the passage that I've given you there, you're going to see Jesus describing a time of great tribulation. Nothing like it has happened since. Nothing like it is going to happen uh, thereafter. And this tribulation happens, and then Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, he gives you the language of judgment coming upon Israel. So these people... Great tribulation poured out upon God's people, the church. Christ says it's going to be intense. It's going to be unlike anything ever experienced in the world. Nothing like it is ever going to happen again. And and we can look back into history and we can see that indeed multiplied millions of Christians were put to death and killed all over the Roman Empire in the first century. So mainly at the hands of the Jews, starting in AD 62, Israel is given the authorization, go find these Christians who won't burn <coughs> incense to Caesar, get rid of them, kill them. Rome also is killing Christians. They won't burn incense to Caesar. They're not allowed to work. They're not allowed to buy and sell. They're going to be killed. They're going to die. And multiplied millions of people are. Jesus says it in Matthew 24. You are going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And so literally, we have a church that exists in the first century. The gospel has gone out to the four corners of the world. There are believers out of every nation and tribe and tongue. Millions and millions of Christians in the first century. And the church goes from that massive number. And they're almost exterminated, according to history, before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And we read about this in history. I've given you a couple of things that you can go to. Metacitus and Suetonius, if you... You go to their works and look them up. They talk about how Christians were persecuted and almost exterminated uh, under the reign of Nero. Church father Justin Martyr, he's writing in his dialogue with Trifo. Trifo is a Jew, and there's this back and forth that's going on in Justin's writings. He writes this, So far as you and all other men have it in your power, each Christian has been driven out not only from his own property, but even from the whole world. For you do not permit, for you do permit no Christian to live. Christians were being wiped out from one end of the empire to the other so that almost nobody survived that time 
of great tribulation. Truly, it was exactly as Jesus said it would be. Never before has there been such a persecution where in the space of about three and a half years, tens of millions of Christians were killed all over the empire. Again, it's just like Jesus said it would happen. So this innumerable, diverse multitude of saints, right? they're in heaven and they're casualties of this great conflict between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of our God, Jesus Christ. So just recapping these things, Revelation 7, these are saints. They're numerous and diverse. They're casualties of the conflict. But nevertheless, and this is awesome point D, they are victorious. They are victorious. What do you mean? They've all died. They've all been killed. How are they victorious? You'll notice that our text specifically speaks of them as standing, right? The question at the end of chapter 6 was who can stand? Well, these people can stand. They're standing before the throne. They're standing wearing their victorious robes of the righteousness of Christ. They're standing in victory, waving their palm branches of victory. They're all powerfully declaring their triumph in Jesus Christ. And again, this is not a difficult point to make. I'm not going to belabor it, but I don't want you to miss the centrality of this point to this text. It's one of the central arguments that chapter 7 is making. The question is, who can stand? And the answer is given, these are standing. These who've lived for Christ and died for Christ, they are standing before Christ, wearing his righteousness. They're standing in victory. They're standing in triumph. They're alive and well in Christ Jesus and worshiping before his throne. So he's their salvation. He's their victory. And in him, Regardless of how things may appear on the earth, they are undefeatable. They're victorious in their king. And that, this, this text is making that assertion. One final thing for identification for this group. Even in death, they are victorious. But also, notice this, either focused on God. They're focused on God. So God is the last thing to go in the blank there. They are focused on God. They're not complaining about the lives that they lived. They're not complaining about all of the suffering that they had to endure for the name of Christ. They're only singing praises to Christ their King. And they are crying out at the top of their lungs, verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they're worshiping God. And their worship, of course, is just a catalyst for more worship because when, when the living creatures and everybody who else is gathered around that throne, when they hear this worship of the martyrs praising God in spite of all that they've suffered, all they can say is amen. And then they start their own refrain. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's just they're, they're echoing this refrain of the martyrs that just proclaims God's faithfulness to them and their victory. And of course, there's so much more that can be said about this crowd, but for today, this is, just, this is going to have to suffice. These are saints. They're innumerable. They're diverse. They're casualties of this spiritual conflict between heaven and earth. But they're victorious. They've triumphed over all of that. And, and in eternity, they're gathered around the throne and they're focused on God. They're worshiping God and the Lamb. And that, that is the, the legacy of their lives. Now, with this in mind... I want to finish up with our second point here, the implications of the great innumerable multitude for us. As I typically do, I give you those points that I've 
I think the text most clearly makes. I've given them, given them to you in your notes. For today, though, I want you to take A, B, and C home as homework. I want you to read this text again over the next week. Think about how this text makes these points, right? Think about how this text illustrates that God has made his people into one new man, right? This diverse multitude brought together. Think about how that happens. Think about B, worship is central to the body of Christ. In spite of everything that they've been through, they're gathered around the throne in worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Think about that this week. Write down some thoughts on how this text illustrates that. See, God provides for his people. See that here in the text. See how that gets worked out even in your own life in the here and now. D, though, I want to talk about that. You've got something to write for your notes. God is powerful. God is powerful to deliver his people out of suffering. Powerful is the word that goes in the blank. And God is faithful even when he does not do so. You hear that? God is powerful to deliver his people out of suffering. And he's faithful even when he does not do so. So the 144,000, they show up as a group that is providentially secured through that coming judgment. And our God is powerful to ensure that. Providentially, those 144,000 are going to be kept safe through the judgment. Even though the whole world is against Christians at this time, right? These are being preserved for a specific purpose. They're going to survive. But then we come to the portion of our, our text today, and we have this whole other group, right, answering the question, who can stand? And these people are not going to be so providentially preserved in this life. They're going to suffer and die. Millions and millions of people over against the, the remnant of survivors are going to die or have been killed because of what God is allowing to take place on the earth. God is powerful to deliver them, but he doesn't. And we have to imagine that as they're going through their suffering, they're, they're probably praying. They're, they're truly Christians who are gathered around the throne. Thy will be done. Right? Everything that I'm going through, I know that it's your will. I know you've got a purpose in it. They're praying, thy will be done. But very likely they're also praying, God, please deliver us out of our troubles. Please deliver us out of our suffering. And, and I believe that they're praying that because none of us enjoys suffering, right? We're not, we don't look forward to going through suffering. I mean, sure, even as we go through suffering in life and we endure things, right? we can go to the word, we understand that God is using that suffering for our good, for our ultimate benefit, for his glory. We trust that God has a purpose. He's got a plan and he's making, it, making us more like Christ. And so like Job, we can, we can endure suffering. And we can sit down and worship in the middle of it, saying the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can do that. And I believe these, these Christians probably were doing that. But make no mistake, Job did not enjoy his suffering. Yes, he, he comes through on the other side of it. You come to the end of the book of Job, and he's rejoicing that he had one idea of God, and now he's got a much greater understanding of who God is. But in the middle of it, Job is really wrestling to understand why am I going through this? 
Why are the wicked all around me thriving? And here I am. I've I've strived to be faithful to God and I've lost everything, even my own health. He's in pain. He's he's struggling, wrestling to understand. And he's crying out for rescue. He's crying out for deliverance through that whole ordeal. And we're the same way in our suffering, right? These Christians had to have been the same way in their suffering. None of us is asking for suffering. And when it comes into our life, when we're diagnosed with cancer or our, our child is sick or we lose a job, we're crying out, God, please deliver me from this suffering. We cry out to God knowing that he is powerful to deliver us out of suffering. And many times God does do that. We, we go to God and, and we pray and he, he heals uh, the broken marriage and he heals the broken relationships and he heals our child who may be sick. He gives us another job. Many times he delivers us out of our troubles. Sometimes he does it though. We've known, we have known people through the years and we have prayed and prayed for years and years and we've only seen them get worse and worse, worse in their, their battle for cancer. We've seen their spirit get stronger and stronger but their flesh get weaker and weaker. Sometimes God just doesn't deliver his people out of suffering in this life. And what do we do with that? Right? that? That's a struggle for a lot of people trying to deal with this idea of suffering, especially in the face of the fact that God is all powerful to deliver his people. But that is the chief, one of the chief arguments that our text today is making. God is powerful to deliver you out of trouble, but he's just as faithful when he does not do that. He has a purpose in it. He's got a plan in it. And we see these people the living who are preserved and the dead who are not equally victorious. And that's, that is a powerful message for the people of God. I like the way Jay Adams said this in his commentary. It is just as much God's will that some should be slain as it is that some should be sealed. It is just as much God's will that some should be slain as it is that some should be sealed. And I can't tell you how important that is to the soundness of our theology, the biblicalness of our theology of suffering. Listen, you, we all need to understand, especially these days, Christianity is not safe. And for the vast majority of believers coming to Christ around the world, they know that as soon as I accept Christ, I'm going to, at the very least, be cast out of my family. Nobody's going to want to talk to me anymore. I might lose my job. A lot of them come knowing I might lose my life. The vast majority of Christians alive in the world today live in persecuted contexts. They come to Christ knowing that Christianity is not safe. It's not a safe place to be. So health and wealth and prosperity, that is not a promise that the true gospel makes to us as believers. It's a promise made by by false prophets who are preaching the false prosperity gospel. Yeah, come to Jesus. It changes everything. Your life gets better. That's a lie. Right? Coming to Christ oftentimes increases your stress level and your suffering level in this life. Right? The, the true gospel makes these kinds of promises for you. You can write down some of these references. I didn't print them for you in your notes. but John 16, 33, if you want to write it down. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. John 15, 19. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You look around the world, for some reason Christians are constantly astonished that the whole world is picking on Christians. 
The scripture says that's the way that it's going to be. The world hates your king. Even if it doesn't know it hates your king, the world hates your king. The world consequently hates you. That's what the scripture says. Right? In the world, you're going to have trouble because the world hates you. James 4.4, another passage you can write down. He asked, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, it's hostility, it's war with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And of course, the opposite of that is true. Whoever is the friend of God is the enemy of the world. Whoever would make himself a friend of God, if you're going to stand on biblical principles and you're going to proclaim biblical truth in this day and age, don't be surprised when the world wants to cancel everything that you say. The world hates Christ. That's what John comes, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he tells us as Christians, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are diametrically opposed things, the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of our God. And because of these truths, persecution has always been and will always be the hallmark of the Christian faith. And though God has and does sometimes give whole generations of people a reprieve from that persecution. The faithful should never be surprised when persecution does come. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12. You can write that one down as well. 1 Peter 4.12. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you to try you. God has a purpose in it. It's normal. It's par for the course, right? Persecution is normative for believers. Don't be surprised. This world wants to silence your witness. It wants to silence the word of God. We are the voice of the the word of God in the world in which we live. And so this is going to try to silence you. And many of us are going to be suffering increasingly in the days days ahead. And we've got to be prepared for that. We have to be prepared for the tide of coming oppression that will very likely be encountered by us in our own lifetimes. Maybe God will deliver, deliver us from it, but maybe he won't. This text is, is basically saying God is faithful no matter what he decides to do. Right. And you have to be prepared for all of that, right? Fact is, though, you and I have to decide today if we're going to serve Christ. Deciding when the trouble actually comes is, is really not an option. Right. You are deciding now whether or not you will be faithful to Christ. And I look around at the world and I'm finding a lot of very frustrating things even in the church. We've got a brother in Canada who's in prison today because he's decided to have church in a way that the state does not want to allow. And I'm very frustrated with the Gospel Coalition and others who have a big platform because they're, well, we don't agree with his methods, but we also don't agree with the state locking him up. Well, if you don't agree with his methods, right, you've got a bad ecclesiology. Because the word of God is very clear about what we are as a church. God puts the body of Christ together. And we're supposed to be coming together. That pastor up in Canada doesn't have the right in God to sign that paper and say, you know what, I'll break our church down into seven or eight smaller churches and then we'll gather that way. He doesn't get to put the church together. God gets to put his church together. And he's doing the right thing in contrast to so many other voices in Christianity that are saying he's doing the wrong thing. Christianity is not safe. If you won't meet 
because of COVID, you've missed the heart of what it is to be a church. I've got pastor friends in various states and all over the place who are really wrestling with getting people just to come to church because of COVID. Safety has become an idol for the church. But our theology is driven more by the culture, our ecclesiology driven more by the culture than it is by this theology of we are going to serve Christ come what may. Listen, that man, that pastor, he doesn't have the right to break up his church. He understands that. But I want you to understand, you also don't have the right to say, you know what, I'm going to stay home today. Because I don't feel like going to church. I'm tired. It's been a long week at work. I've got, I've got a lot of homework to do if you're in, in school, college. I, I just don't have time to go to church. I'm exhausted. Kids are wearing me out. I'm just going to stay home. You don't have the right. I need you to understand that. People around the world are, are coming together because they understand that the gathering of the assembly is necessary. And God has put this church together as it has pleased him. That's, that's Corinthians, right? He put the body together as it has pleased him. And every single one of you are essential to this body. Not just the preachers. Not just those who would lead in worship. Every single person has a role to play. And God put you here for a purpose you don't have the right in Christ to rob people of that for insignificant reasons. If you can't stand, I need you to hear this today, today too. If you can't stand when we have almost no trouble, don't expect to stand in victory before God's throne when judgment day comes. You have to decide to serve Christ now. There's this passage, I think it's in Jeremiah. It always rings in my head when I start thinking about these things. He's asking, if you, if you are worn out when the infantry comes, what are you going to do when the cavalry arrives? When the heavy horsemen and the chariots arrive? And I feel like this is where the church in America is. People are worn out with the smallest little things. They can't be faithful over the smallest little things. What's going to happen when we're facing situations like Canada? What's going to happen when Canada starts facing situations like, like Afghanistan and Iraq and China and, and India? Where people are literally hunting Christians and killing them. What's going to happen to this church? Would you be here today if you knew that there were, were, were people roaming around looking for you to kill you? Would you still be here? Christians will be there. These Christians in the New Testament, they showed up knowing it might be their last day. Christians in China are showing up knowing it might be their last day. If you can't stand fast in Christ and read his word when nobody's trying to stop you, do you think you're going to stand fast and read his word when, the, when they are trying to stop you? If you can't stand fast and be a man or a woman who can, who can pray for an hour a day, pray with your kids, pray with your wife, do you think you're going to stand when things get hard? No. If you can't stand for Christ today, don't expect to stand in victory later. Right, so there's, there's, there's an encouraging picture painted for us here, but also a very convicting one. Right, for those who stand for Christ and are faithful, there's only victory. There's only triumph. They're not triumphing because of their own might, their own strength, their own character. They're, stri they're, they're triumphing because of Him. Always get that right. As Christians, we're going to stand victorious in judgment because of Jesus. But you have to know, when Jesus arrests somebody's heart, He changes people. He says, come as you are, but He doesn't leave you as you are. He will transform you. Right? Theology is not relative. 
What you think does matter. What you do does matter. There are no Christians, right? There are no Christians who are genuine, who come to Christ and say, I'm a Christian, but then go live in adultery. There are no Christians who genuinely come to Christ and then go out and live stealing from people and lying to everybody. Who, who, who think marriage is trivial, who think parenting is not as a non-issue, who think that life, abortion, is a non-consequential thing. Christians are changed. We have a different way of thinking. And so I'm really hoping you'll be challenged by the witness of these. Encouraged that, that in Christ we have victory, but also challenged to actually examine yourself. Are you one of these victorious ones? Because your life and how you live right now will tell a powerful story about that. You can tell from your notes I've got one more point to make, but I'm not going to make it because I want you to, to linger on that thought that God is faithful to his people and be challenged to come and be faithful to Christ. There is a word that goes in the blank there. You can write it. It's unity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is central to our unity as a body. Take that one as homework as well. But, but please... Leave out of here today realizing the faithfulness of God regardless of what you go through. God is faithful, but God is making his people. He's forming Christ in these believers who were martyred for their faith. He's forming Christ in the 144,000 that he, he preserves. If you're not being formed and you don't even care about Christ, you don't care about the holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. You don't care about the body of Christ. You don't care about the word of God. You don't care about prayer. Listen, it's because you're not God's. If you don't care about God and the things of God, you do not belong to him. That's not my opinion. That is the word. If you don't care about serving the Lord, you do not belong to the Lord. Jesus lays that out very clearly in, in, in Matthew. Think about it. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you.